At AGI, we take grain bin safety seriously. With Bin Manager, from the convenience of your smartphone, you can know the condition of stored grain without having to climb a ladder or stairs to monitor temperature and moisture. AGI Bin Manager is fully automated, meaning you can trust that grain is safe and in condition without returning to the bin to turn on or off fans and heaters. With advanced algorithms to optimize fan and heater controls, you can be confident that your hard-earned harvest will be in condition when it is time to sell. Find AGI Bin Manager at aggrowth.com digital. Hi, I'm Caitlin Dubin, and this is the Rural Woman Podcast. I'm a first-generation farmer who married into agriculture. Born and raised in a city, I was so unfamiliar with where my food came from, but I was determined to figure it out. Through my journey into agriculture, I saw women who were strong but humble, often taking a back seat. To me, these women were leaders who deserved a seat at the table. I created the Rural Woman Podcast to share the voices of women in an industry whose stories often went untold. The rural entrepreneurs who live and breathe their work, full of grit and pride. We come here to share our stories, to be in community with each other, to be challenged and inspired, but most importantly, to be celebrated and to be heard. We may not all live, farm, ranch or homestead the same, but we are all connected. We are rural women and our stories are worthy of being told. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. This week, you'll meet Natasha McCrary. Natasha is the founder and owner of 1818 Farms. Natasha grew up in Florence, Alabama, and attended the University of Alabama for her college education. In 2011, Natasha became interested in starting a family-run farm to teach her children about sustainability and the importance of the land. Natasha had no experience raising farm animals like South Down baby doll sheep, let alone running a farm, but she had an idea of how she could make it work. Combine the farm with a small business that would help cover the cost of the food for the animals. The result has been a flourishing flower farm and a line of all-natural beauty and lifestyle products focused on sustainability. It was so great to get to know more about Natasha, and I'm so excited for you to hear her story today here on the podcast. Before we get to Natasha's interview, I wanted to share something with you that I have been working on. So if you're anything like me, you are the farmer that is responsible for feeding the crew and making field meals. And I get it more than anyone else that field meal planning and executing can be pretty stressful. Now, I've been doing field meals for a few years now, and I feel like I've learned some pretty smart ways to help make it a bit more enjoyable, a little less overwhelming, and I would love to share those tips and tricks with you. So I've created a free downloadable PDF full of tools, tips, and tricks to help make your field meals a little less stressful. So you can grab that resource over on my website, wildrosefarmer.com slash field meal guide, or on your listening platform of choice. Just scroll down to where the show notes are and the link will be there for you. And here's hoping that your field meals or your harvest meals or whatever it is that you call them can be a little less stressful this field meal season. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Natasha. Good morning, Natasha. How are you? I'm great, Caitlin. How are you? I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rural Woman podcast today. I am looking forward to getting to know you better and to share your story with my audience. So for the listeners who are unfamiliar with you, Natasha, can you give us your background and how you got your start in agriculture? Sure, sure. So um, I'm excited to say that this year's 10 years for us at our farm, which is 1818 Farms, and we're located in uh, northern Alabama. And 
really, I have, my life took a lot of different turns. I had a background in business. So, you know, I had maybe, I did grow up, my family, we grew all of our food. What I tell people is, you know, you grew what you were going to eat. You can, you put everything up. So I did have exposure to growing things. But then once my kids became uh, where they were all going to be in school and I really wanted to do a family building exercise where I could show them how to start with a business idea and which was going to be our farm because we are in agriculture. We breed the South Down baby doll sheep. And when we first started, we did a lot of produce and now we're primarily a cut flower farm. So we have agritourism and a lot of education, but really it's funny how to say I'm here 10 years later, had you asked me in 10 years ago, would I be here? I really just wanted to show my children, you know, about conservation, appreciating outdoor, being great stewards of the land, and really just creating something as a family to teach them about a business. And, you know, we have gone through turns and here and there, and that's sort of just how we ended up here is, and I always loved the outdoors, loved, you know, being outside and the thought that you can take one little seed and what you can produce from that to me is just amazing what you can produce from it's like a miracle is what I tell people that you have this so that's kind of how we started and just we've just kind of done a lot of different things over the years take us back to 10 years ago what were the ages of your children when you moved out onto the farm so at that point my middle was eight so my youngest would have been five and then my oldest would have been around 11 and a half, 12, something like that. So now we're talking, my oldest is about, is graduating college in two months. So, you know, they've seen a lot. And I do think probably if we sit down in five years, especially now for them to see what's happened at the farm, because not only did we start, and all of you out there listening who are farmers, it is hard work and it's seasonal in some sort. So what I did is, I mean, I'm a business person. You have to be able to pay your bills. And that first season when we hit frost here, I had to find a way to have another revenue stream because I needed to pay for the electricity, the water, feed the animals. And that's when I started creating a bath and beauty line, so to speak. And that really has allowed us to do so many things over the years because we had that additional revenue stream. So I always encourage people to think outside the box and really think of other ways you can take your passion and make it into a successful business as well. Our new thing that we're really working on is uh, botanical dyeing using the flowers and, you know, different plants that we're growing. So for me, not that I get bored of one thing because I continue with the main, the bath line, the flowers, the sheep, but I like to have new things to just challenge my mind to offer something new and unusual to our customers. Well, and what lucky customers you have to have such a diverse uh, farm in their area to go out and enjoy. I think, you know, I, I asked the age of your children for when they moved out onto the farm because I'm thinking as an 11-year-old to grow up for most of your childhood in, you know, the city setting or the non-rural farm setting and to go kind of be brought out to this looking back, what was their reaction to, you know, kind of this change of lifestyle and this change of pace at kind of a pivotal age, I would say 11 years old. I'm trying to think back of when I was 11 years old. Um. (laughs) Well, the good thing is, okay, so where we live in this little town, it's called Mooresville, Alabama, and y'all can look it up and it has like a little website. The town is where we live, even before we had the farm was only 58 people. Wow. So... (laughs) So the land is adjacent to our home. So there, in some ways, it was just, they were already in, you know, they're ingrained in this lifestyle of just a handful of families. But we just added the differing daily task of owning a farm. So in some ways, they already had that, I would say, seclusion. And what was interesting, go back five years before we started the farm, we were in Birmingham, which is, you know, a large city. In Alabama. And I just remember when we moved here thinking, okay, we don't have high-speed internet. I mean, we had like a little satellite. So I think they had sort of already been in that it was a slow transition into we were already kind of rural for sure. 
Um, given, I mean, we can go 20 minutes into a, a city, but I mean, you just didn't have a friend over. I mean, that's how, you know, you played with your brothers and sisters because your closest friend might be 30 minutes away. But I think for them, it was the change of really having a task. You know, a, a, for everyone who farms, I tell everyone on Christmas Day, the animals have to be fed. So I think it's that just differing, you know, if you're at a ball game and your kids are playing t-ball or softball, you know, when the game's over, guess what? If you haven't done it before, you have to come home and feed the animals, you know, at night. So I think it was probably just that change in the task and day-to-day of just really being busy. You know, you're constantly busy with new tasks and things that have to be done, whether it's animals or planting or harvesting or for us arranging and delivering bouquets. I mean, there's just so many things. So I think maybe it was a good thing. They had five years to sort of slowly get into, hey, I can't run next door to a friend's house. Exactly. Well, and adding all of these things to your farm is just adding responsibility to their plate. And I really think that giving kids responsibilities in their growing up years really helps them when they become adults to continue those responsibilities and be upstanding citizens of the world. But uh, that's my parenting as a non-parent advice or (laughs) perspective here. And I think it's interesting just to see like this being our 10 year anniversary for uh, a a gift. It was not only our 10 year anniversary, but it was my husband and I's 25th anniversary together. And he had a beautiful painting made, uh, someone, uh, you know, he had it commissioned and it was the kids and myself when we were painting the barn because the barn was just, it had to have a lot of work. And just to look back on, they've been an integral part of so many pieces of this. So now as they're older, it's different. It could be helping park cars at events, or it could be for my kids now delivering flowers. I mean, I know that sounds like, what do you get from delivering flowers? But really you learn a lot. You learn how to use directions. You learn how to communicate with people. You learn how to, you know, ensure that they receive the bouquet to make sure the bouquets look great when you deliver them. So, or another thing is, like one big thing for us is the routing of the, if you're delivering 60 bouquets, those need to be routed because we are in a rural area, but we're going out to different zip codes. So, you know, that I've given them responsibility of, you know, that it can be something that will help them, I think, in the future. Absolutely. I want to dig more into 1818 Farms and all of the wonderful things that you do on your property. So you mentioned that you have the baby doll sheep breed. And I always try and rack my brain before I talk to any sheep people. If I've spoken to anybody before on the podcast that has the specific breeds, and I think you might be the first one if my memory serves me correct. So tell us more about baby doll sheep and why you chose that to be your breed on your farm. Well, they're delightful. I mean, if you could see, if y'all could see me, I'd be smiling away. They look like smiling teddy bears. That's what they call them, little teddy bears. But One of the reasons is, well, when we started the farm, my middle child, who was eight then, fell in love with the baby doll sheep. And that's what kind of sparked this, you know, let's let's really do something as a family, a business, something different. And the more we researched this breed, what I loved about it is the South Down baby doll sheep were brought over from England. Over the years, what happened is this breed was almost extinct. There were only about 350 left in the United States. So what happened is I think it's World War One is what I've been told is Americans tried to crossbreed them to get more meat and more wool. And they just didn't, you know, they didn't have the characteristics that, that, you know, you want. So when in the nineties, like the last remaining flocks were identified around the United States and they started this registry. So now it's several thousand strong, but for me, I thought living in a town that is known as a historic town. Like our our town was incorporated in 1818 and that's where we get the name 1818 Farms. Alabama didn't become a state till 1819, yet our family's been here for five generations. So, you know, it kind of had a significance to me. You know, we're we're trying to preserve not only the land, but our town, what better way than to help protect this breed that was almost extinct. Another thing that I love about this breed is it's naturally pulled, and so it means it doesn't have horns. So anyone who deals with anything with horns, sometimes, you know, you can get rammed or, or hurt. I love that about the breed. And then also for a female, you know, they're, I mean, we have probably between, they're maybe 80 to maybe 180 pounds a male. I mean, maybe, you know, 175. But there's something that I, as a to practice animal husbandry, can really handle. 
you know, if you have a deck chair and you're going to put them in to trim their hoofs, there's something I can do alone if I had to. So I think that was also something that attracted me to them is you wouldn't have to rely on another person to help you in the vet care and, you know, the nursing of them if there's something. So, and they're just so cute. I mean, y'all have to go look at them. They're the cutest things. I mean, they're the cutest things I've ever seen. When you describe them as a smiling teddy bear, that's exactly what they look like. They just have like the most pleasant disposition. Like they don't have a resting sheep face. Like they are so cute. (laughs) Oh yes. Y'all have to go and just go to our Instagram and or Facebook or even our website. We have photos and you will see they are adorable. And we're about, they're going to be shorn. I think it's April 7th. So they'll look very different then. So now is like the perfect time if we have pictures because they are just so woolly. And it's, you know, it's the best time of the year when they're so woolly and cute. And and they're so sweet. And, you know, a lot of these, I have, you know, we are very particular in where our lambs go into, we want homes that are going to be, you know, hobby farmers or they're into spinning. We primarily use our sheep for the wool and preserving the, the breed. But, you know, a lot of my sheep I've had, this is our 10th year. We have several that are 10. I mean, I've had them since they're babies, you know, so we're just, you know, they're so tame and just adorable. I mean, they're just adorable. I can't say anything else, but wonderful, wonderful, wonderful addition to a farm. Yeah. What are the characteristics of their wool? What are you using their wool for? Okay. So the wool is, it's not as long as you would get into something like Merino for people out there are familiar with that. So it's a little springier. Think of something with like natural curly hair, maybe a poodle that's loose and it's a little coarser. It has a lot of lanolin. So that's nice. And the fact that, you know, it's really soft, but it can be that you have to wash. It takes several washing. But what we do with ours is we do a couple of things. We spin it and then we have it as in our bath and beauty line. We have little things called botanical wax sachets, which are like aromatherapy for your home. We take the flowers, we dry and they're arranged like a piece of art and the wool is the hanger. So it's used that way. And then we also use it in a sheep to nest, like a wool filled suet feeder. We wash it and it's, you know, arranged in there beautifully and you can build the nest with that. And then we've made Christmas ornaments and Christmas tree. I mean, there's different things we've used the wool for because sometimes we have it into roving or we have it into spun into yarn. So it just sort of depends. But we try to really have an end product that, you know, people can still enjoy because people love the sheep so much. And each of our sheep, of course, have names. I mean, I can't help it. They all do. And we try when we use these products, like let's say on our sheep to nest wool filled suet feeder. My mother-in-law does all my pencil sketches. There's a little sketch of Elvis and he's there and there's a little bird on his, you know, back plucking the wool out. He's going to fly up to a tree. So we try and make the animals sort of like the cover guys and cover girls of our products. So people who have visited the farm or they follow the farm online, they get a little piece when they have a product, you know, just a little cute little sketch of the farm animals. I love that. And for the people and your customers who don't have that on-farm connection, they get that through your products and they get that from coming to see these beautiful sheep on your farm and they get to take that piece home with them and they say, I know how the sheep was shorn. I know where this product came from. And, you know, there are a lot of people in this world that don't have a direct connection to a farmer. So giving them that extra bit of connectedness through your products and through your farm is such a neat thing. I want to switch gears and talk more about the flowers on your farm. So you talked about how you started with produce, but have eventually moved to just flowers. What was the decision behind that of changing from food to flowers? Yeah, there's several things. Number one is we can really extend our season to 12 months with flowers. And you're probably like, what? I mean, you don't have a frost. We do. However, we dry flowers quite a bit. Like in a harvest day, we're going to be harvesting for fresh cuts and we're harvesting for dried. The misconception in dried, and I, I have a video on our YouTube channel and we can talk about that is, oh, I had a bouquet. I received a bouquet. It's seven days old. I'm going to dry it and preserve it. You're not going to get the great, beautiful flowers. We harvest that as, as, as though I would be sending it to you to go in your home. Like we know exactly how to maintain the color and the quality of flower. 
So that allows us a revenue stream almost 12 months a year. The second thing is in farmers markets here, we are, where our farm is, we are backed up to the Wheeler Wildlife Refuge and it became a constant battle with raccoons Possums, like you'd have 300 beautiful heirloom tomato bushes and in the night they would come and they would take a bite out of one tomato from every every bush. I'm sure people out there are like, oh yes, I've had that happen. Or you have a whole roll crop of popcorn and in one night they come and destroy everything. So that was when I just was tired of battling the critters because I mean, you're not going, I mean, you're at a wildlife refuge. There's really not a lot you can do. And the third thing that I saw, and I think people can probably relate, is farming. Anyone listening to this who is a farmer knows it is hard work. We try and make it look easy. And on Instagram, it's going to look, you know, you don't show like, oh, I'm laying out in the field. I'm so hot and my back hurts and all this. But you would perhaps go to the farmer's market. We did four farmer's market a week and someone would haggle over green beans being $2 a pound. And I'm thinking at $2 a pound, I'm giving this to you. You don't receive that with flowers. It's a luxury item. So it's just a very different mentality for anyone out there who is a flower grower versus produce. It's odd in the fact that you are so careful to try and, you know, use no pesticides, produce the best produce you can, and someone will haggle with you. But on a flower, you're doing the same thing. But something about that, it becomes a luxury item. And I think it's more profitable. For sure. So... You mentioned getting into the drying of flowers. What are some of the characteristics that you're looking for when you are harvesting the flowers that you would use them either for fresh flower bouquets or you would use them for drying? Yes, a lot of it has to do with as harvesting before it goes to seed. And we have a lot of tips when, like I know when a zinnia, the wiggle test, like I know if I wiggle the stem, I'm going to know if it stays you know, erect and nothing moves. It's funny. I know just from looking at it, because I've done it for so many years, we probably at this farm grow nothing that we can't. It has to be able to dry well for us to grow it. So a lot of it is you want it to be at any flower, you're wanting it to be at peak, but before it starts to go downhill. I don't know if that makes sense. You know, once it starts going into seed, you're not, it's not going to hold the color. The next thing is you need the appropriate environment. And we have a what's called a flower drying room. And here for us, I mean, it's very common to be in the 90s when the, the weather is hot. And this room has, it's totally dark. It has no air condition. It, it, we run dehumidifiers and dehydrators. And we have wires just run straight across and we're bundling. Because we bundle as though you were selling wholesale. Like we know we're going to bundle X in 30. We're going to bundle X in 15, X in 8 based on what we're, if it's celosia, if it's zinnias, if it's, if it's eucalyptus, just whatever we're growing. So you really, we know you can never go past peak and then we hang it with little clothespins and dry. And we can typically, most things we can dry in about four to seven days. And then once we go into that, either it stays or it goes into bins because you want to keep that moisture. The key is you have to keep moisture and it's very humid here. So it's kind of a, I've just learned over the years and some things like we have to dry in a, like a lisianthus, if we hang it to dry, it will never dry correctly. It has to go into a dehumidifier, I mean a dehydrator. And we've just learned that over the years, it'll brown. And I think it's a lot of that is just trial and error and you learn how to dry it quick enough without being too hot because the, the heat's what browns everything. Can you, I'm sure there's so many to name, but can you name just a variety of the different flowers that you do grow on your farm? Can you specify if they are annual or perennial and if they're used for cut flowers or are you growing? So like now what we're harvesting, we started harvesting probably four weeks ago, anemones, ranunculus are coming in, hellebores, and those are perennial. Hellebores, uh, you definitely they are like the most easy keepers, shade loving. I've had these for probably, I started with eight and I probably have 200 of these that they readily seed and uh, are just great. And then after this, we'll go into poppies, um, Icelandic poppies. Then we have delphinium, larkspur, sweet william, snapdragons, nigella, bachelor buttons, campanella, Gaviosas, and we just put in our straw flower a few weeks ago, Bupleurum. Like those are things we've already put in. They're in low tunnels, and we'll be pulling, the, you know, start harvesting those probably in four to six weeks. We we had a really strange. I don't know if it was this way for everyone else. Like 
December this of 2021 was the warmest, like almost in history. So a lot of things that like we lost all of our stock, a lot of our larkspur because we planted it in September. It was so warm in December, it thought it was like February. And then we had a really cold January. So this is one of our first years we lost a lot of things. So we've done some replanting, which is frustrating, but I mean, it just happens. I tell people, you learn every time. I've always planted in October for a spring harvest here. This year, you know, I've always heard you should do it earlier. You should do it earlier. You should do it earlier. So I said, we're going to pedal to the metal. We got to get everything in by mid-September. I will never do that again because everything, I mean, I know it was just odd, but everything was too early. It was just too early. We had a lot of loss. So then we're pulling double tulips and single tulips right now as well. We have a cover crop on one section of our field, which we use crimson clover. We're about to till that and then we'll put in, we do it a little different, Orlea, we'll do Docastara, our Lysianthus. Those will all go in the end of March. And then once we get in past the frost, we'll start doing all your regular annuals, like just your, you know, your zinnias, your, all of the, we grow so many varieties of celosia, which looks like the velvety, like a pompous plume. Then we do chief, Karume. I mean, there's so many varieties within that that we grow because it's so nice for drying. Our eucalyptus is growing right now. And then we have lots of Veronica and Verbenia. I mean, we have so many things. It would be hard. Ageratum. We grow a lot of varieties, a lot of varieties. You are speaking to a Canadian in the like 25th month of winter. And <laughs> I'm just soaking all of this up because... <laughs> <laughs> I am ready for spring and just hearing the names of all of these flowers just bring me so much joy. What have been some of the flowers that are just the easiest growing for you? They produce the best yields. What are some of your favorites? Definitely Lysianthus. It's for summer, you know, it looks delicate and like a rose. It's a little cool hardy, so we can get it in a little bit earlier. Let's establish those roots that way early on. But then you're, comes July and you're thinking, there's no way this is going to bloom. And in July here, it's their hottest month and they thrive. And I have some photos of those. Just we do major harvests of Lysianthus and the base life is incredible. So definitely Lysianthus. We grow several thousand of the Lysianthus. And then the zinnias, of course, Oklahoma, Giants, Persian Carpet, and Cosmos, those are always going to be just what I tell people, you know, no-brainers in the summer. Azure Adam's a great one for us too. You know, it's it's kind of a filler, but then it has, a, a you know, a little silky look on the top. And then that's really great. And Gomfrina. And there's always a love-hate. You know, Gomfrina look like the little lollipops, the globe amaranth is what they call it. And it is the worst thing to harvest ever. I mean, I'm just going to tell you, like, it's a nightmare. When you look and you're like, okay, how many thousand do we need to cut? but it dries beautifully and does a great pop in your bouquet. So those are really good. And we use a lot of amaranthus also in the bouquets and like we do hot biscuits and velvet curtains. And so those are good. And we, you know, and of course, sunflowers, everyone, you know, the sunflowers last year, we did a trial. We tried a lot of things for Syngenta cut flowers. And it was my first year to grow the Sunfinities, which is a branching sunflower, but it has minimal pollen because in bouquets, that's what you're looking for. And we cut probably off of 60 plants. Uh, there's no telling how many thousand flowers we've cut off those. They just, they bloom continuously for like 10 weeks. And typically we grow a one cut, which is a pro cut, but these were great. And, you know, we're always trialing different things. I mean, even last year I grew some stevia just to use in bouquets because it was one of those things I knew would kind of bloom towards the end. And, you know, we put, we incorporate herbs, a lot of cinnamon basil. We use that. We use scented geranium as a really, really great filler for us. And it, I've had a hard time this year getting it. I think actually it may be, I'm getting it from, uh, from Canada this year because my supplier is not going to have it this year and I didn't propagate it because I've never had a problem, you know, getting it. So, but yeah, those are always good things for beginners. I tell people, if you want to start a cutting garden, you can't go wrong with zinnias and cosmos for sure. And then a basil is a great, a great fill of the cinnamon basil. What are some of the flowers that you have grown in the past that are still in your nightmares and that you would never do again? <laughs> mm, well, I, I grew quinoa once and it can flower beautifully. And it was the biggest pest magnet ever. You know how you like, it's a nightmare if you go out and you're like, could any, because we deal 
in the South, there are just so many pests with the humidity. It doesn't matter what you do. I mean, it was terrible. And I have to say, I love asters, but I've had a lot of problems with those with aster yellow. So, but I'm going, I'm doing them again this year because I just love them so much. And then I, in 17, I think it was 17 or 18, I was like, I'm never, I'm breaking up with dahlias. I know everyone out here listening is like, how could she say that? It's terrible. And I was like, I'm never again. I've grown all this. I fought the pest. I put the bags the whole season, the little organza bags on every volume. And then last year, Syngenta, they, I trialed four varieties. So I'm back off the dahlia bandwagon. So I've made a turn. So don't always say something I've had nightmares of, give it a second chance. But what I did is I grew through cuttings versus tubers because we have heavy clay soil here. It's, I mean, we amend, we amend, we amend, but digging the dahlias and storing them, that's just, that's in my nightmares, you know, especially if I had a back of a 20 year old, maybe now, but all that. So the dahlias I've come back, I've kind of made a, a U, I've made a U-turn a little bit, you know, a U-turn and then back, now I'm back on the path, you know, I'm coming back around to dahlias. So. I'm sure all of the flower people aren't happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I know everyone was like, you're such a hater on dahlias. And I'm like, oh, it's so much work. So. Growers have a lot to consider when it comes to storing grain. Are you getting the most out of your on-farm grain storage? Could an aeration model help to better determine fan, heater, or dryer needs? And what is the ROI if you installed a bin manager system to remote monitor and control in-bin grain conditioning? At AGI, we want you to ask the tough questions about how Bin Manager allows growers like you to know exactly what is happening inside your bins without climbing a ladder or stairs, or how you can benefit from remotely monitoring your grain temperature and moisture from a smartphone, or how fully automated fans and heaters can provide peace of mind all season long. Contact an AGI representative today for a free on-farm smart storage assessment. Find AGI Bin Manager at aggrowth.com digital. That's aggrowth.com digital. I want to go back. You know, you've mentioned that this is your 10-year anniversary this year. Looking back, what have been some of the most significant challenges that you have faced on your farm and in growing your business? I think, I mean, this, I mean, this sounds silly, but it's finding good employees. It's the hardest thing because you have to love, like I said, for anyone out there who's been farming for a long time, you do it because you love it because it's hard work. And I think finding great employees has been the hardest thing. And also me being willing to give up some control on the farm, you know, because I like things to be a certain way, you know, I color block the fields. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm that person who I want everything to be a certain way. So I think giving up that control to people can be that, but I think finding quality employees because there's a huge learning curve. I remember the person who's been with me the long or next to the longest, like the second season we were doing this because, you know, we have to lay the irrigation, do the ground cover. There's so many things you do about how much easier it was the second season. And if you're constantly having to retrain people, you're never getting over that learning curve. You're never going to hit scale if you're constantly having to teach someone how to build a bouquet, having to, you know, how to seed start. I mean, that's the hardest part. I think it's been the biggest challenge. And I think in these times now, it's even harder. You know, I, I think everyone after COVID has been a challenge with employ finding great employees. I think that would be the most. And then I think challenging too was for me, I had only had one dog in my whole life. So learning how to pull a sheep. I mean, I can remember thinking the first time, there's no way I can put my hand in there. I mean, I'm thinking, but I'm like, it has to come out. So I attribute also to a great vet who has been willing to mentor me and knowing, you know, he can't always get here at 3 a.m. when he lives 40 minutes away, you know, and teaching me things. And I attribute a lot of our success on that side to someone who was willing and who I think speaks for his love of animals because he wants me to be able to do it. You know, there's certain things he wants me to do. And I'm like, I cannot do that. You're going to have to. I cannot do that. You have to do that. But I attribute that as a challenge yet as a success because of someone who was willing to mentor. And I try my best to do the same way. And like last night, 
someone messaged me about they're getting ready for a wedding and how should they do their tulips? And I, of course, I'm going to always answer that. Or where did you get these vases? I'm like not a person who's like, I can't share my information. You know, it's a secret because it's not. Because I think I'm always looking at pay it forward. And 10 years ago, what I learned from other shepherds as well as my vet, where would I be today if they had not been so forthcoming and supportive to me? So I try encourage everybody to not look at it as competition, but to look at it as just lifting up other women or, I mean, most of the people I deal with are women. I mean, as far as now, it's interesting in the farmers, flower farmers, lifting them up and being encouragers and being like their biggest cheerleaders, because that's the way we all grow. Right. Well, and there's a saying community over competition. And I think the more of us that are willing to be mentors and to share our stories and to share where we got things or how we learned something, I think is so important. And especially now when we use things like social media and YouTube and all of these things to learn and grow, I feel like we're learning and growing beside each other, regardless of if we live anywhere close to one another or not. And kudos to you for continuing to build your community and to continue to share your knowledge with your community. And that's really the reason we started the YouTube. That was something sort of out of my comfort zone. Like we were just talking earlier. I mean, if I'm going to film a YouTube, I have to at least get out of my sweaty clothes and comb my hair, you know, because no one goes to the flower farm when it's 80, any day, you're just trying to get your sunscreen on and go. But when COVID hit, we canceled every field trip. We canceled every garden club, every master gardener. I mean, everything, everything was canceled. And there was, you know, a big part of our mission is education. So that, you know, I just had to kind of get out of my comfort zone. And it is, you have to really put time into it, as you know, as a podcaster, because there's editing, there's, you got to make sure the lighting's okay. I mean, the first one I did was when I think one of my best educational videos of when to harvest a zinnia. But I didn't know I needed to have the mic in my ear because you can't hear me in some of them. So it was a learning curve. So I'm trying to, you know, give back. But you, it is hard. Like, I know some people do a YouTube every day. And I'm like, well, we haven't done one in a few months. Because also ours is seasonal a little bit more. But you also have to put that, schedule it. So, and I'm also going to do, um, I'm contributing with Bloom TV, which they're getting, they're launching now. And, you know, I've, I'm trying to do content for them too. So, Really, I think a big part of it is trying to educate people and share your knowledge because, you know, some people, I mean, are visual learners. And I think that is one thing that I love about YouTube and with the Bloom TV, some people learn better by seeing in this aspect of like the flower arranging. I mean, you really kind of have to be able to see that or when to harvest an anemone, you know, like how do I know when's the right time? So, and I've become more comfortable with that. So I encourage people to, to give it a go and Probably the favorite thing we do here is, and we've done this for years, is we host the Bloom Stroll and Duque workshops. And that really gives me a lot of time to show people in person, like, these are all the flowers we grow. This is the process of how many months it takes. Like, I really like to educate people in the fact that you might be cutting this flower in July or August, but guess what? I started planning and paying for this flower last, usually I've ordered every seed for the following year by November. You know, it's a huge process because if you're not a planner in flower farming, you miss the varieties. You know, you're pretty much, you're working at almost a year ahead the way we order and the way you're planning. For sure. Well, and it's really agriculture in itself, right? We're never living for today. We're always planning for the future and planning what our soil conditions are going to be like, hoping we know what the weather is going to be like. There's so many unknowns in our industry. Sometimes it's really nice to be able to have a plan on paper and then you know, at least you feel kind of put together in some way, sense or form, especially if you came from a business background where things are kind of a bit more clear and not having so many unknowns. Yes. And I know like for us last weekend, we were at 80 degrees and this weekend, the low is 20 degrees. So like you said, there's a huge, you know, if I have, I'm like, am I going to lose these ranunculus? Because there's only so much I can do because we grow in low tunnels. So you know, they're unheated low tunnels, but I'm just trying to, in my mind, think I have to get that tunnel covered by a certain time with a temperature, but I don't want to get heat too hot. Then I need to get the, the plastic over. So it is, there's a lot you can't control. I was just thinking about this this morning and thinking, how many years have I sat here thinking, I can't believe a frost is coming. 
and it's March and what's going to happen to my flowers. And it can be a little bit stressful, but you're right. You really can't, you can, your best plans, you cannot control the weather. And, you know, for anybody who is an A-type personality, that is a big challenge <laughs> and something to work through. <laughs> yes. My son a few weeks ago said, shouldn't y'all just get a high tunnel? All I hear about is the tunnels, the tunnels, the covering, the uncovering. But then I'm like, I need, I don't want the high tunnel there, you know, in this growing season because of our space. You know, I don't want it there and I don't want to have to heat and all that. And I said, well, I, go, I guess you're right. We, you do hear a lot of dinner talk about the tunnels, the tunnels and the covering and the uncovering. But, you know, it's worked so far. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. So looking back, some more. What are some big wins that you want to celebrate from over the last 10 years? Oh, there's so many. One of the wins that I think, and it may sound odd, is the relationships. You know, I mean, I've won awards, but for me, the biggest win is I think about the thousands of people that I may have never known or I may have not been able to impact their life in some way whether that was mentoring or that gave them the bug to start their own business. I mean, I was named Amazon woman owned business of the year in 2019. And that means a lot. It did a lot for our business. And the fact that there might've been people who had never heard of our brand, but they went and purchased a product. You know what I'm saying? It did a lot. But when I look back at what really I think is important is those relationships and how it has also changed me, my things I've seen, you know, working with people who have never, you know, we've had, I remember having Girls Inc. here and they'd never seen a farm animal. You know, they had never seen a pig or a sheep or a chicken. You know, they didn't know a chicken couldn't lay, could lay a blue egg. So I think a lot of that is about the impact. And I know the first, this is what's so funny, talking about how I knew nothing, the first lamb that was ever born at our farm. I mean, I knew nothing. I knew nothing. You know, I mean, I had studied every book. I had my hand on everything, but I had a field trip of kindergartners and the sheep just laid right down on the field and pushed the lamb out in front of it. And I'm sure those kids to this day, and that was eight years ago, they're like, I see their moms in Huntsville and they're like, I was on that field trip when Lulu just laid down and because I pushed the lamb right out because I was like, we cannot have story time. I know we're supposed to read a story and do a craft, but we've got to get this mama and the baby and the barn. So I think of those types of, that's something those kids will never forget. And I will never forget either, but it's the impact I think you've made on, on the people. And I remember having in the past before COVID, we had our sheep shearing to the, open to the public. We do a lot of, we did a lot of free give back days. Like you come to the sheep shearing, you didn't have to pay a thing. It was, you just reserved a ticket. So, cause I had to know if it rained people would laugh. They're like, why are you getting people to buy a free ticket? I'm like, they're not, they're reserving a free ticket because if it rains, we can't share their wet. But I remember a lady probably being 85 and she sat and just watched the shearing. I mean, she watched so many sheep and she said how she hadn't seen that since she was a little girl. And it was like, you could see that interaction taking her back. And it's those kind of moments that I think mean more to me than anything at the farm. I, I don't think I'm ever going to forget the story of the kindergartners being there. <laughs> oh, no. And the, the thing is, is, is she was a first-time mom, and she was my favorite sheep, Lulu, I've ever had. I hate to tell the other sis, but she lay down, pushed him out, and she just got up and went to eat, and she just left him right there. But then she was a great mom, but she did, I think she just was like, something is wrong. I do not feel well, but those little kindergartners, they'll never forget that, I don't think. Or their parents. Their parents, either. <laughs> Yeah, when they got a little bit older and started to go through those classes in school, they'll be like, I know what they're talking about. I saw a sheep be born when I was five. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> right there. Right there. There you go. <laughs> so, Natasha, what advice do you have for those who are looking to expand on their current farm with a value-added product? Do it. Because, and think about people... Think about the experiences too, because value added is great. And we hope everything we do at the end of the day is value added. But I encourage you, if you have a farm, to think about experiences. Because me personally, I don't want any more things. Like I don't need any more things, but I love experiences. So I think like the, if you have something you could do, whether it's 
paint a pumpkin. Maybe you're like, I can't, don't want to have a pumpkin. I have a pumpkin patch, but I don't want people picking it. Let's paint a pumpkin or let's, if you're doing flowers, let's, do, you know, have them do an arrangement or perhaps you're going to do a little, a cooking demonstration. Like once I did years ago when we were more into produce, I did how to build your own little herb garden. And we, I, you know, I grew that. And then, went, then I went through recipes of what I had cooked. So People are wanting, I think, especially as more people have been indoors and restricted and you know, people can go out, is think, try and think of some experiences and don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Like, I know for me, like, I look and I think, oh, my gosh, there's a weed. I mean, because I can't stand weeds. Like, that type A person, I want all the weeds. But I, most of the people, they're not seeing the things you may see as an imperfection. Like, they're seeing the beauty as a whole. Or maybe you have out and just have a, a if you have animals you know, have out and have just a petting day. And if you have the babies and talk about the history of that goat or sheep, and then what you do with the, the end product, you know, I talk about with the, when we have the pigs, most children have never seen a pig. And when they uh, get them to do a little trick and I rub their belly and I pull their little hair and I say, guess what? In the old days they made from this. And I say, they use the, the, that for toothbrushes, you know, they would cut the hair off and that kid's ah. So come up with little things like that. I think experiences. And if you can come up with another, you know, something else value added, I say go for it. Because right now, especially with social media at the at your fingertips, there's a great way to get, you know, word of mouth out there. Yeah, for sure. Well, and like you said, after the last couple of years that we've all had, it's nice to be able to get out and connect with things by being outside and connecting with nature and to see where people's foods come from or where flowers are grown. These are things that, you know, you think that people know, but there are a lot of people that don't. And to create an environment that's welcoming and to welcome people to ask questions, I think is so important to continue to expand our industry as a whole, whether you're a flower farmer or you grow corn or you have however many head of cattle, the more people that know where things come from, I think the better. Yeah, totally. And and, and I think really you have to think outside the box because you can say, oh, I have a small, you know, I'm a, I do farmer's market. I have this vegetables. Come in, show them and show them where it's grown and then say, this is my favorite salad. And this is how, and tell them. And I think what's important is letting people know. I think I did a post about the bouquets we sent out, how many, eight, what, nine to 10 months went into this bouquet. Like talk about, you know, you just don't, I tell people, a lot of times I think that people think you just throw a seed out and walk away and it's there, but there's a lot of nurturing and care that goes into it. And I think if you can do something like that and demo, like, here's what I take, because a lot of times people don't know when you were growing food, I found at the farmer's market, what to do with it. But they wanted to support you, but they didn't know, especially if you're growing something a little, you know, a little rare, you know, certain types of radishes or you know, people just don't know, you know, come up with a little demo for them. And I think you'll be surprised at how receptive people are going to be. Yeah, exactly. And I think just that extra added value, whether that's your time or your expertise, or you, you've you made a product that you love and that you want to share. I think those are all good things to not only set you apart, but also to expand our community and to expand the creativity that can come through you know, learning from each other and sharing what we know and, you know, giving people other great ideas to expand and do their own thing. And I think collaboration throughout our industry is so cool. And to build this community and work with one another to, you know, continue to share our stories, I think never a bad thing. I agree totally. Natasha, my last question for you is what is the most rewarding part about being a farmer for you? Oh, so many things. I think just seeing when I go to the farm and just the peace that's there. But then I also think like I look at it like when I see the sheep and I look at what I mean to them, like I'm something special. And I think you know, I'm their shepherd. I mean, when I look at that, I'm their caregiver and they look to me for protection. And I think that feels really great. But I think also being able on the flower side and the product side is just to share the beauty and the blessings of what the soil, the sunshine and the rain can give us and and bring those things into people's homes. I think I'm blessed every day. I think how blessed I am to be able to do something that I love and I know it's hard work, but it doesn't even feel like a job. Yeah, for sure. 
For the listeners who would like to connect with you after the show, where can they find you online? Oh, sure. So it's just 1818farms.com. It's just the number 1818, like the year. Or um, 1818 Farms on Instagram, Facebook, and on YouTube. And then on Bloom TV, they'll be launching, I think, in April. Perfect. And I will link all of those in the show notes so people can find you and connect with you and see those cute teddy bear sheep of yours and all of the beautiful flowers and all of the great things that you're doing on your farm. Thank you for having me today, Caitlin. Thank you so much. I really, truly appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast, a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network. The Rural Woman Podcast is more than just a podcast. We are a community. A huge thank you to the Rural Woman Podcast team, audio editor Max Hofer, and admin support from Kim and Co. Online. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producers, Sarah Reedner from Happiness by the Acre and Carrie Munven from Laystone Farms. To learn how you can become a Patreon executive producer or other ways to financially support the show, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast to get the latest episodes directly on your playlist. And if you are loving the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that accepts ratings and reviews. You can connect with us on social media at The Rural Woman Podcast and with me at Wild Rose Farmer. One of the best ways you can support the show is by sharing it. Send this episode to a friend or share on your social media. Let's strengthen and amplify the voices of women in agriculture together. Until next time, my friend, keep sharing your story.